stupid is as stupid does. It's the Digigods. Please welcome two guys who ran for three years, two months, 14 days, and 16 hours. They're pretty tired. They think they'll go home now. It's Wade Major and Mark Kaiser. Oh, Corey, who enabled you, who empowered you to bring out your inner, your inner gump? Who hammed you up? That was brought to you by Lorenzo Rafa. He's not a smart man, but he knows what love is. Oh, thank you, Lorenzo. That was really good. Corey loves it when you can let him be in character. Anything that allows him to, uh, to do more than just an intro, to really explore the inner life of the uh the of the intro that's always what he prefers um mark is uh mark's in the kitchen right now i i'm not sure what he's doing mark what you doing okay yeah we're 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 on we're on it's a good thing this i'm i'm defrosting banana bread because i don't have any more ice cream for you because we ate the last of it last week awesome so i'm I'm gonna get banana bread yes well but i think you've had this banana bread before that's fine as long as I got something to munch on. Okay, uh, you know what? I'm gonna uh, go through some anime then. Well, because Mark always hates it when we go through anime. Assa- this is from All Funimation. We're starting off with some Funimation stuff. Assassination Classroom, season two, part one. Uh, don't even dare touch this if you're not up uh, up to speed on Assassination Classroom. Uh, it, it's one of the weirdest, most bizarre, and unusual anime series I have ever seen. Uh, you know, there's this alien that teaches the class. It's very strange. It's extremely unusual. Um, it's, it's just weirdness and, uh, it is uniquely and utterly Japanese in every conceivable way. Somebody thought this up somehow and they made it into a series. I don't know. But anyway, it's out there and, uh, all you need to know is S-A-A-U-S-O. Know that acronym. It stands for Special Arms Against Unidentified Slimy Octopus, which might be teaching your children. Uh, Assassination Classroom, Season 2, Part 1. We also have Noragami. It's pretty cool stuff. Season 2 of Noragami. This is a uh, limited edition. Oh, and by the way, Assassination Classroom is a uh, Blu-ray DVD combo pack, as many of these often are. Uh, Noragami, likewise, is Blu-ray and DVD combo pack. Season 2, limited edition. Uh, all of these came out in uh, late uh, February, and uh, Noragami is, you know, modern-day Japanese uh, myth adventure, and it's all about Yato, who is uh, a, a a god, not one of the top gods, but it's, uh, you know, he's sort of like on the Hercules level, I guess, of the modern Japanese polytheistic pantheon. And uh, it's just, uh, it's all kinds of uh, spectacular adventures set in kind of a mythical uh, modern other world. That's good stuff. Thank you, Mark. Thank you for the water. And we have the Mystic Archives of, of Dentalian, the complete series. Uh, this is a, a, a really quite interesting. This is um, a little bit like um, Pokemon for very literary adults. Uh, this is about people who have to uh, fight monsters that come to life through literary works, and uh, it's you know it's like like very like uh, librarian Ghostbusters or something. It's very interesting. I actually find that interesting. So that is the Mystic Archives of Dentalian. Very very cool animation. Very great artwork. Uh, really rock solid stuff there. And then we also have uh, Ultimate Otaku Teacher Season One Part Two. 
this is, you know, schoolgirl stuff. I uh, never really much cared for this, but a lot of people absolutely love this. And it's just, you know, I guess if you're a schoolgirl in Japan and uh, that's your life and you wear the uniforms and you go through whatever, I guess there's an audience for that. Maybe there are grown men here in the West who, who fetishize about that. I don't get it. Anyway, Mark, uh, you have some anime there as well that uh, goes to your particular issues with that series, which is going to be a live-action series soon, we should point out. I have no problem with Ghost in the Shell. Do you have a problem with Ghost in the Shell? I thought you had a problem with Ghost in the Shell. No, what I have a problem with is Ghost in the Shell too, And it's funny because... Here, microphone. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I, we've been doing this show for how many years now? Um... No, Ghost in the Shell, I, I, I can get behind, but Ghost in the Shell 2, it's funny because I have, I remembered reviewing that film at Cannes, and I, and actually I have, and Wade will like seeing this, you guys can't see this, um, all of my box office reviews in 2004 were on the, were, were filed with the, oh, yes. with the letterhead. Yeah, back look when, at that, sure. That's right, it's got yeah. the official Cannes letterhead. Uh. Let's see what I wrote in 2004 about Ghost in the Shell 2. I gave it two stars out of five. That can't be good. Um, the long-awaited sequel to the 1995 anime classic Ghost in the Shell, this new offering from writer-director Mao, Mao, I'm still getting over my tooth surgery, so okay. my, my voice and pronunciation will not be that great. Mamori Oshi confuses and bores at the same time. What saves the film from being a complete creative meltdown are the visuals, which are at times absolutely stunning. For reasons best left to the ages, Innocence landed a coveted spot in competition at the 2004 Cannes Film Festival. Upon its North American release, the film will certainly court a very select group of adventurous anime fans. Others need not apply. Look at that. That's, right. uh, that's what I thought of Ghost in the Shell, too. Uh, I... I, I, I I was like, I, I remember this movie. But Ghost in the Shell is a masterpiece. People love Ghost in the Shell. It's great. I have no problem with Ghost in the Shell. Okay, it's the second one that you had a problem with. It's the second one, which I saw in Cannes that I have a problem with. Now, will we have a problem with the, uh, the live-action version? That, of course, remains to be seen. Well, a lot of people already do because Scarlett Johansson is not Asian. And uh, that's a, uh, that's a pretty, pretty, big, pretty big change Pretty big shift. That is a pretty big change, but uh, you know what? It's it. I think Ghost in the Shell is terrific. It's 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 just it's sci-fi. It's most mind-expanding, matrixy, cyberpunk, cyberpunky. Yeah. You know, I think that it, it looks spectacular. It's uh, it's got a great soundtrack, and I just think uh, it's a it's a really cool movie. This is like it, the it's, fourth release of this thing, too. By the way, it is. I I just think that it's two. I didn't like. Yeah. Well, anyway, this has ultraviolet on it, so uh, there there's that. Which I continue, you know, it, it, the, but the future is not going to look like this in 2029. You realize that, like the the future keeps being everything that every you know what, what we were supposed to. Aren't we now in the year that was supposed where we're supposed to be having colonies on Mars and Schwarzenegger is supposed to be like flying up there and going through full body scanners? <laughs> wasn't wasn't everything in uh, supposed to be happening now? Yes, like it, that? It, it, it turns out that it, instead of heading towards ghosts in the shell, we're heading towards idiocracy. Yeah, it's <laughs> very very true. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. We're all doomed. Mm. All right. Well, they're both out. Ghost in the Shell too, and, and they, they look the great. One. They're fantastic. Now, of course, you know this is uh, this is on Blu-ray, so you got to ask yourself if you do not own any of the other ones. Now, Akira, Akira is the one that is. They're doing Akira too, a live action. Akira. No, but in terms of like ones that you thought I might have had a problem with, yeah, Akira I thought was fantastic too until it, it got a it, it it got a little much at the end. Yeah, there's a big blob guy. He comes yeah. out. I don't know what's going on, 
But uh, Ghost in the Shell's terrific. I uh, got some other interesting stuff from Funimation. The uh, this is an amazing series. I mean, a really amazing series. I I can't say enough about this. Wolf's Rain uh, is it doesn't even look like anime, and that's not me slamming anime. That's just saying that sometimes you find uh, animators in Japan who are willing to push the envelope in ways that they they've just never pushed before. And you know, every country has kind of a style. French animation has a style and. American animation obviously has a has a handful of styles, and there are a, a few styles in Japan. But by and large, everybody kind of sticks to the uh, the anime thing. Now, this is a Blu-ray DVD combo pack of Wolf's Reign, uh, the complete series, and uh, it 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 is just really really elegant, uh, extremely detailed artwork, uh, very sensitively written, and the idea here is that you have uh, in this sort of mythical world that has entered a post-apocalyptic phase and uh the there are now wolves roaming the land when they never should have and this woman known as the flower maiden uh comes to life and uh it is it is then this mythical adventure that transpires thereafter um i don't want to say that it's little like like a uh, clan of the cave bear because it it sounds like it but it it uh it Kinda is in some ways, but it just—it's just really poetic and mystical, and and just incredibly well animated. Um, so that is Wolf's Rain. Really, really highly recommended. Uh, Garo, Crimson Moon, season two, part one. Great action. Like many of these things, sort of nonsensical uh, story. I don't really understand the whole uh, thing about the you know the golden armor and uh, the alchemist, and uh, you know it gets into all of that stuff that really kind of gives me a headache and it requires way too much concentration. Um, but uh, I'll tell you, the animation's great, the action is great, and uh, it uh, it's very very uh, solidly done. So this is uh, top notch stuff as well. Garo Crimson Moon. Uh, season two, part one. If you've been following it, if you have not been following it, you will be like I, and you will be totally uh, enchanted by the animation and confused by everything else. Showmen's sample. You gotta love them. They got big eyes. They're girls. They're. It's just. It. This is more titillation. This is just. Uh, this is PG rated titillation. Is what it is. Uh, girl school stuff. It's another one of those series. There's a lot of these, and uh, you know the 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 girl school stuff, even the the, the boys school stuff, the school stuff. It's a whole subgenre of anime that's never really sunk in with me. But in any case, uh, so Showman Sample is uh, is out there, also in a Blu-ray DVD combo pack. And then uh, lastly, uh, Nichiju, My Ordinary Life, and uh, this is uh, that this is that anime style where. Uh, everything is a little rougher and people don't have noses and their mouths get really, really big and the animation is intentionally very, very sketchy and raw. And they usually do this because it's supposed to be funny. That's like your cue that this is a comedy. And uh, it's, uh, it's, just, it's more student stuff. It's just silly slapstick with kids and, and their, their antics. And it feels, like, uh, it feels like somebody did a Japanese version of Charlie Brown and the gang if they were 10 years older and on LSD. How does that sound? Is that a good description? Well, you, you, you really lost me at have, have No Nose. Yeah, anyway, this is for the people that do Lucky Star, if you know it. It's, it's a, almost exactly the same kind of deal. Okay, Mark. Uh, let's uh, let's talk about something. Pop music. Pop pop pop. No, music. no, no. Let's talk about a movie that won an Oscar. 
Let's talk about a movie that won an Oscar. Fences. You know, you, here's the, the thing and the show, Fences. The show was great. I mean, she was right out of the gate. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, she was, she was. I mean, for the first award of the evening, you know, they always give out the supporting actor awards before, you know, earlier in the evening. First award of the evening was Mahershala Ali. Beautiful, right? He got us off to a good start. And then when she came on about, what was it, about 40 minutes later? Right. Viola Davis. And it was just like, it was so moving. And everybody ripped on her because she said one thing that people were like, what the, what are you kidding? Like she, remember she said, um, I, I'm so glad I became an artist because we're the only profession that celebrates life. And everybody pounced on her for that. It's like, look, the lady's having her moment. I know what she means. I get it. You know, she, what she was talking about is we're the only profession that, where you get to experience other people's lives, where you step into someone else's life and experience. The, the, the fact Good that grief. She, Nobody understood that. The fact that she didn't say it just like that means that she hates America. <laughs> That's what that means. So here's the thing with Fences. You know, people, first of all, everyone knows what I think of Denzel Washington. He's the greatest of all time. I can watch him do anything. I thought, I thought, I he was gonna, I thought he'd get best, best actor. Uh, there really was, there was a chance there. I really did. I just, I really did. I didn't think they'd go with Casey. I didn't go with Casey. That's how I know... That was the moment when I probably should have known that. Um, the younger we, folks. We, we, we promised just, we weren't going to talk about Austin. No, but the, but the last year. That's what. Yeah, that's there when was I, an influx of younger, more diverse. That's when members. I knew. That's when I knew, I should have known that Moonlight was going to upset because if they if they were not going to let the Casey Affleck backstory uh, tarnish his Oscar, if they are not so enamored of Denzel, that means there's a younger segment that is all about you know not being attached to the past because Den- in any other year Denzel would have won this. Well, Casey Affleck is 41 years old. Denzel's like, you know, 60-something. Yeah. So, you know, the new guard is going to give it a Casey. The, the, the influx of yeah. younger yeah. voters. Yes. People knocked fences because they thought that uh, Denzel, who also directed this, they thought that he did not expand it enough beyond its stage roots. And I, I don't really accept that criticism because to me, first of all, why expand it when it's already perfect the way it is? August Wilson's, you know, Pulitzer Prize winning, yeah. iconic, classic play. And also, when you think about it, you know, a, a very, very small percentage of yeah. people in the world have seen the play. Yeah. So if you're going to do the movie, you might as well, he's probably thinking, if you're going to do the movie, considering that 99.9% of the world has not seen this play, you might as well give it to them exactly as August Wilson would mm-hmm. have wanted to see it, yep. which is in a more theatrical proscenium arch form. Now, there's some stuff in the backyard, and there's, of course, there's plenty of stuff in the house. So he expands it a little bit, and there's some exteriors on a couple of other streets, including sure. the opening shot where he, he's on the garbage truck yeah. and going down the street, which really just establishes the, the, the time and the place. But otherwise, I think he had no responsibility to expand this and have conversations that won a Pulitzer Prize in the house suddenly be had in a bar yeah. or in a barber shop yeah. or at Toys R Us. It just, you know what? It's perfect the way it is. So I, I, I understand and can justify Washington's choice. Yeah. Uh, here's how I look at this. Um, Fences is, uh, it is almost a companion stage play to Death of a Salesman. If you if you want to get a complete snapshot of the um, what it means to be an American father from that particular period, let's say you know, kind of uh, pre World War II, like Depression era to just after World War II, that that period, right? Like let's say thirties, forties, early fifties. If you want to understand what it meant to be an American father during that very very turbulent turbulent tumultuous period. 
you get that snapshot watching Death of a Salesman and Fences. One, and not just because it's a you know a black father and a white father, but th- there's also one is a salesman, one's a garbage man. They represent different strata in society, different kinds of fathers. They rep- they they relate to their children and their and their families in different ways. But it gives you a very very uh, a more perfect sense of that period. And I think you do the material justice by honoring it and doing it faithfully. What I like about Fences more than anything else is that if you've seen it performed on stage, particularly if you've seen uh, the James Earl Jones interpolation, which was the original Broadway performance, James Earl Jones plays it very differently. James Earl Jones had a really, really bad relationship with his father who abandoned the family at a young age, took him a long time to reconcile with his father, a lot of anger. And uh, James Earl Jones is playing his father on stage with a lot of vinegar. And Denzel plays a more redemptive, sympathetic version of that character. He changes the character. He finds someone in that character without changing the words. He found inside August Wilson's words a different way to play the character, which is astonishing to me. And then he willed this movie to to life as producer and director and actor in, in just a beautiful, classic, old-fashioned way. I think it's really uh, it's one of the best adaptations of a classic stage play uh, ever put on a film. And the Blu-ray uh, has, let's see what the Blu-ray has on it. It has uh, special features, got a couple featurettes that, um, you know, they're pretty standard issue. Really, the, the star here is the film. Yeah. Fences, definitely rent it. Definitely rent it. It's a great piece of, uh, again, it's a great bookend, as Wade says, with um, Death of a Salesman. You know, you've got, you know, the father's son. You've got the, the, the American dream and how it's played out by these two different fathers. And uh, it's good stuff. So Fences, yeah. highly recommended. Uh, so you've got a rather silly movie here called Solace with Anthony Hopkins and Colin Farrell and Jeffrey Dean Morgan. Uh, this is a silly movie and, and it's astonishing that all three of these very fine actors did this. It really makes no sense. This is from Lionsgate premiere, which is, you know, like a, like a genre line of Lionsgate. They go straight to DVD, straight to video. And, uh, those are three really fine actors who should not be doing straight to video stuff, at least not together. Well, I I remember when this came out, I was dating my ex-girlfriend. Yeah. Right. So my ex-girlfriend was Anthony Hopkins' personal trainer. Oh, that's right. Right. Remember her? Yeah. So she, um, I met Anthony Hopkins at the Thor 2, at the Thor Dark World premiere. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's where he, he walks out and he says, hello, Mark, Tony. Yeah. Like, yes, I can call him Tony. Fantastic. <laughs> he said, hello, Mark Tony. He said, hello, Mark Tony. I'm calling him Tony. And then I, I, I met him again, whatever. And so anyway, so she had said, you know, um, she said, oh, the next, uh, you know, Anthony's next movie is called Solis. She was Mexican. So yeah. was Solis. And I will, yeah. I, I, will, I will invite you to the premiere of yeah. Solis when it comes out. It will be so exciting. Well, of course, Solis winds up being a... Yeah. You know, this kind of not, not really dumped out, but this yeah. is made by Grindstone. Now, the people over at Grindstone, they make they Grindstone is a uh, is a company that's very much built on the Avi Lerner uh, model of you know just pack some stars into a piece of junk and then you'll get the money and you make your money foreign, right? That's the it's the Avi Lerner model, and Grindstone is doing a lot of that. And we've talked about the Steven Seagal movies a few weeks ago. We had two of them in the, in two weeks. It was just junk, and he's got the shoe polish in the hair. Same company, Grindstone makes those, and other companies release them, usually Lionsgate. So this is a Blu-ray DVD, sorry, Blu-ray and Ultraviolet, no DVD, Blu-ray and Ultraviolet only on this. Uh, but the idea is it's, it's kind of Anthony Hopkins, you know, semi-doing the flip side of Silence of the Lambs, 
Uh, it's, you know, a psychic chasing a serial killer. And in this case, it's uh, Jeffrey Dean Morgan is, uh, is the FBI agent, and uh, Anthony Hopkins is the psychic, and yada, yada, yada. By the way, this the movie is not terrible. It's not terrible. It's just not worthy just, of the people in it. Oh, not even close. No, it's, 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 it's very... It's not. It's 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 adequately done. It's professionally done. It has production value, but it's not believable. It's a rather silly story. Very silly story. As opposed to Ghost in the Shell. Yes, which is <laughs> the just, documentary. It's, it's it's my life. It's what I've been living. Are you the ghost or the shell? In this, uh, I'm the I'm the shell. I'm always the shell. You're the ghost. I'm the in the. Yeah. Um, actually, hold on here. Let's. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna get to television next. Uh, but our last two movie movies are, uh, they're okay. Uh, one of them is a Walmart exclusive. You'll only find this at Walmart. It's called Country Crush. It's a country musical. Uh, this has a bunch of people in it I have never heard of before. Completely unfamiliar with any of these people, but they're all very, very attractive, and they look like they should all have CW shows. And uh, it's, uh, you know, this is kind of like, what was, the, what was the musical with John Travolta as the guy that teaches kids how to sing? It was kind of a country thing. You remember that? Yeah, sure. What was that? What was that called? You're going to make me Google it, aren't you? Nah, forget it. Anyway, this is kind of like that. That's what it reminded me of. Um, You know, Nancy is an aspiring singer struggling to launch her country music career. That's all you need to know. Anyway, uh, it's just uh, they they throw a kind of an Iraq war angle into this as well just to try to make it feel a little bit more... uh, a little more real. Uh, it doesn't really work. It's just silly. Uh, but it's it's innocuous for the most part. It's called Country Crush, a country musical. And then we have RoboDog Airborne. This is the stupidest thing ever created. And it has the family-approved seal of approval on it. This is utterly insane. It's about a robot dog. That's all it is. Yay! It's a robot dog. Doggy! And the, uh, the effects are ridiculous, and the acting and the story is ridiculous. And you know who made this, Mark? You know what production company is responsible for this? Uh, Grindstone. <laughs> Once again, they just they, they crank them out. I don't know where they get their money. I really don't. All right, uh, Mark, let's move into television. We have two, two uh, major box sets this week. We do. We have uh, Star Trek Voyager. This thing uh, ran from uh, like 1995 to 2001. This whole thing really is just a bunch of packaged uh, DVD sets. Not Blu-ray. Not Blu-ray. There's a hundred. This thing lasts 168 episodes. Of this goddamn thing. Um, <laughs> so I mean, Star Trek the original was fine. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, uh, Next Generation captured lightning in a bottle twice in yeah. some miraculous way. Deep Space Nine. You're like, okay, I'll buy this. Voyager. You're like, okay. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm struggling to stay in this thing. You know what? Yeah. And of course, you know, you can go online. I liked her as Captain Janeway. I really. I have to say that. I really thought she. Kate Mulgrew kind of caught a thing. It was a very Kirk-like um, performance. It was somewhere... I mean, she got it. She like she had watched, you know, Shatner, and she had watched Patrick Stewart, and she kind of understood the vibe, the whole Starship vibe that you're supposed to... Authority yeah. with a little bit of a wink, a little bit of humor. Yeah, there. and she, I, mean, I enjoyed it. I thought it was good. And having a female captain was a nice thing, especially, you know, remember that, the end of... Uh, Turnabout Intruder, the very last episode of uh, Star Trek, the third season, sure. where you know it's like you don't let women be captains, and she, uh, you know, you did the body switching thing with Kirk, and people who knew the show had been canceled were watching it and thinking, "What? 
Anyway. Have you seen the video of, uh, you know, Kate Mulgrew was not the first, uh, was not originally cast. Right. It was uh, Genevieve Bougeau. Yes. And there is video, and I don't know if you've seen it, there is video of her. They have footage of her, shot footage. She was cast in costume shooting the show. Really? And then she was fired. Have not seen it. You why was she fired? Okay, if you watch the video, you will know why she was fired. Oh, really? Completely miscast. Really? Lost, out of element, not the right casting. Oh, she does not have that. She does not have the spark. Kate Mulgrew had that spark, as you she say. Did. Yeah. So you should check out the video of, uh, of Genevieve Bougeau as yeah, okay. Captain, whatever her name right. was, because it's out there, okay. and uh, you can see why they they got rid of her. Anyway, oh. Voyager, you know what? what it's about uh, you know they're four thousand trillion light years away, and they got to get home. What can I say? The thing, it, it, this this was this was to me was the first Star Trek show that never really captured anything it just sort of was a show that people liked and that was it yeah i and then you had star trek enterprise which really didn't go anywhere well then they started doing the wrong thing which is going backwards which is what they're still doing you know uh voyager they got cold feet with voyager and they got cold feet for the wrong reason they got cold feet about going forward into the future because without gene roddenberry sort of telling you what the future is going to be in his big magnanimous brain Everybody was afraid to speculate. They're afraid to sort of so we 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 backtrack. We go into the past. We go back to Kirk. We go back to you know before Kirk. We go back to things where we sort of that sort of have a um, a grammar in the Star Trek universe already, a pre-existing grammar and pre-existing concepts that we can draw on, as opposed to having to invent new ones going forward and risking being compared to what Roddenberry would have done. Uh, those comparisons come anyway. Voyager. The problem, Voyager needed a better writing staff. It's a good premise. It was a good cast. It was a good general um, framework for a series. I just, I just don't think the, uh, the writing staff was up to it. I think if they had better writers, perhaps done like the original series and gotten major science fiction writers, they would have, uh, would have nailed it. And all these guys have done almost nothing. Tim Russ, the guy just shows up on, on Star Trek fan movies. You know, Garrett yeah. Wang, Jerry yeah. Ryan... You know, uh, obviously Kate Mulgrew has been yeah. terrific, but um, what's funny with Star Trek is that now Star Trek Discovery has been moved back again. I know. Moved, it's moved back to early early fall on CBS yep. All Access. So I I, that thing, there's a lot of pressure on that thing because if because the Star Trek movie series with Chris Pine, that thing is way on the bubble. Oh, yeah. I just don't know if the new regime's going to even want to make that movie anymore. No, they're not. Uh, well, they're are they going to recast it? Will they just let Star Trek all? Will they just let Star Trek Discovery carry the burden of the franchise? I, I, I'll be honest. I think the idea, look, the, the, the two stupidest things that they have done at Paramount in recent years, one is, is resurrect the Star Trek series in a way that alienates fans uh, solely so they can try to build some kind of a foreign audience for it. It's, a, it's It was a dumb... I mean, I give J.J. all the credit in the world for giving it an old, the old college try, but it's, it was the wrong direction to go. It doesn't... It's not canon. It's, 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 a, it's crazy. And to look at that and think, this is our franchise roadmap for the future. Oh, that Indiana Jones thing? Yeah, here, Disney, you can have that. And then, on, in addition to that, they sell off all their Marvel contracts, like Iron Man... And let Disney have all of that as well. It's insane. When you look at the hundreds of millions of dollars in earnings and in participation and in licensing and marketing that Paramount left on the table by getting rid of and give, by giving these things to Disney, it's unbelievable. It's astonishing. And then they, they kind of bet the farm on Star Trek, which isn't going anywhere, and Mission Impossible, which is kind of on fumes. Doesn't make any sense. Mission Impossible. I, I got to say, each each new Mission Impossible film, where you're thinking to yourself, 
got to be the last one. It, but they're good. I know. They're good. But but you but let me let me put it this way: Cruz is not going to be starring in Mission Impossible at sixty-five years old. He's not. Okay, so you're 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 going to be lucky to get three more Mission Impossibles out of him. You might get two, but mm-hmm. that's it. Then there's no more. It's done. Anyway, our other box set of the week. Oh, Ma- what? Mama's family. Yeah, Mama's family. <laughs> Mama's family favorites collection. Look at that face. I know. Look, look, look this at Vicky Lawrence's the, face. This is the Mama fa- Mama's family favorites collection. This is all six seasons of Mama's favorite episodes chosen by Mama herself. So, Yay. you know, they released the complete series uh, some time ago, and then they started releasing these Mama's favorites from season one, from season two, from season three, four, five, six. And now they've put all of those together in a complete Mama's favorite. So this is basically the the kind of the best of the six years so that you don't have to watch the, all these seasons. If you just want kind of a smattering of stuff that was fun, uh, this is fine. A lot of, you know, all the usual guest stars. Alex Trebek even showed up on this thing. Uh, and Vicki Lawrence, for those who don't know, Vicki Lawrence basically selected these. These are all her favorites. 37 episodes from six seasons in a nice light box set. Although I wish they'd gone with slimline packaging. They want to make it seem like there's more on here than there is. They could have frankly put all of these on two discs yeah, very right. easily. Wouldn't have, been, uh, wouldn't have been hard. So by the way, when they came to her and they said... Uh, Miss Lawrence, we would like to do a, uh, you know, your favorite episodes of Mama's Family. Do you think she said, oh, I love that show. I'd be happy to pick some. Or do you think she said, yeah. how much money? <laughs> how much money? Pay me money and I will sure. pick, uh, pick, I'll pick a couple of episodes out of a hat. You got it. All right. Six, season one from History Channel. Uh, have you seen this, Mark? Huh? Have you watched what? six? Have yeah. you watched six Never on History it. Channel? Never heard of it. Are you serious? Never heard of it. It's good. Swear to God. It's really good. What is it? Uh, six is a series that is uh, basically it's like the it's inside SEAL Team Six. It's dramatic, it's fiction, uh, but it's you're inside the experiences and the missions and the the mano a mano and the you know the the fist bumping of uh, of SEAL Team Six, and it is absolutely spot on real. It feels great. What is, is there an episode where all they do is fist bump? It, pretty much, yeah, yeah. A very special six episode five. Everybody fist bumps. Yeah, they do. They do. No, it's really, really great. Don't make me laugh. My mouth hurts. I had all stitches in my mouth. Don't okay. make me laugh. I know what that's like. I had that last year. Uh, eight episodes, two discs, and I swear this is going to keep going. It's on uh, Blu-ray and on Ultraviolet. The and and here's the deal. Here, um, this is created by uh, the Broyles team of father and son, William Broyles, who of course you know co-created China Beach, my all-time favorite television show and has uh, been an advisor on numerous movies and who wrote, uh, among other things, the uh, uh, movies like Castaway and Apollo 13. You know, um, amazing, legendary screenwriter and a Vietnam veteran. Um, He is producing this. It is his son, David Broyles, who is himself a veteran, a a, a veteran of Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, So, and and it's basically David Broyles who wrote all these episodes, and uh, it's, you know, it's much more him than it is his father. But he's very much uh, up to what his dad does, and uh, it's real. It's great. It's really, really gritty and tough and and honest, and I will take this any day over stuff like uh, Black Hawk Down. Um, It's really, really... uh, it's great. It's pretty terrific. So the, uh, the you know the missions, the stories, uh, they just resonate. They ring true. And uh, this may be where Weinstein finally makes a little bit of a recovery. You know they've been on the on the they've had been laying people off and they've had debt problems and uh, 
they bungled this Oscar year. They got Lion nominated, but they were betting everything on uh, Michael Keaton being in the running for the founder. That didn't happen. That got nothing. It's got just, no they, attention. They have to buy Miramax back. Buy the library they do. back. Buy Miramax they need to. back. Relaunch Miramax. Totally. It needs to be the new Miramax. But in any case, uh, Weinstein got behind this, and it's really good. They did a very good job. So this is uh, History Channel 6, Season 1, 8 episodes, 2 discs, Blu-ray and Ultraviolet. Definitely worth it. Uh, wait, the complete 4th and 5th seasons of Kendra on Top, which is oh a my uh, reality show that extends the fame of Kendra Wilkinson, the former girl next door. Um, I don't understand why this... You know, this is one of those shows that just exists because they've got a they've got a time slot and they got to fill it with something. So here comes Kendra on top. By the way, according to the box, according to the uh, packaging, not a sticker, but printed on the packaging. Yeah. Nearly eighteen full hours of laughter, excitement, and drama. Oh, that's fabulous. So you know wow. it's good. Um. Anyway, this is garbage. Um, uh. It's Ernest now. Jim Varney, who is uh, I don't know if people remember Ernest anymore. <laughs> He's dead. I mean, we're He's talking gone. like, you know, I mean, Ernest, you know, when Ernest goes to camp, it was like 1987. They were originally commercials. He and John Cherry. Okay, if anybody, here's a little backdrop. Um, uh, Jim Varney and, Mar- and uh, uh, what was the guy's name? Cherry. Uh, Mark, is it Mark? Not Mark Cherry? Uh, the, the, I have no idea. No, hold on. Uh, well, anyway. Uh, don't stop the recording. Okay. So Varney and uh, and his because uh, there's the guy who created uh, the Desperate Housewives who's who, John Cherry. John Cherry. Okay. So Mark Cherry is the Desperate Housewives guy. John Cherry is the uh, cherry on top. I'm good. Uh, anyway, uh, so John Cherry and uh, Jim Varney were a team back in the '80s, and they were a team that did a lot of television commercials. And what they would do is. The, these commercials would be one shot. I mean, there, there was like nothing to them. It would basically be, okay, we're going to do a promotion for this auto dealership. And it, we're going to do it. And then we're going to do one for this auto dealership. And they'd have like 50 or 60 different auto dealerships all over the country. And they would shoot the exact same commercial for them, all as local market commercials. And so Varney would, you know, crawl up on a ladder and say, have you gone to this? And he'd do his little hick thing, yik, 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 and then fall off the ladder. All right? Do it again. Next take, and now say the other dealership. And, they, and you know, in a weekend, you've knocked off, in not a national commercial, you've knocked off like 70 or 80 regional commercials, which can be much more lucrative than a national commercial because you don't have to pay your talent as much, and you make re- reams of money from all of them. So they got very wealthy off of that. And those commercials were so popular everywhere that Disney said, how about making a movie? Let's make Ernest a movie character. And next thing you know, the thing took off like mad. They made two or three Ernest movies, and then they went, you know, into, uh, they, they went into straight-to-video movies, and then there was a series, and heaven knows whatever else. I, I lost track at a certain point. Yes. Um, so, by the way, on. speaking of regional car commercials, a total coincidence yesterday as I yes. recuperate from my oral surgery. Uh, yesterday, I watched Used Cars. So fun. It is fun. It's a great movie. It's long. It's an hour and 50 minutes. That's long for a comedy, but it, but there, there's a lot of story there to unravel. So it's, it, it's, it's good. good stuff. It's good stuff. It's funny. And, and, and I dipped in and out of the audio commentary because you, know, you, so you can never funny. get enough of that. That's so good. Anyway, it's Vernest is uh, only lasted 13 episodes, but it is now available on uh, DVD. You know, it's one of those things where um, a little of this goes a long way. You'll, you'll, you'll watch oh, like, yeah. you'll watch three episodes, and then, you'll be, and then you'll be like, yeah, I think I'll skim the fourth one. <laughs> I think I'll skim the fifth one. I think I'll skip the sixth one, and that'll be it. Uh, 227 was uh, a sitcom. I guess it's a sitcom, right? Yeah, it's about yeah. – uh, yeah, you can call it a sitcom. Jack a. a. It was with Jack A. Jack A and uh, Marla Gibbs. 
Um, this is about um, a, a family in DC, they're living in an apartment building. It wasn't, it was one of the- It was it kind was, of like good times for a different was. generation. It was, you know what? It, 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 it was one of the more popular sitcoms of the 80s, but it wasn't like a phenomenon like yeah. you would see you know, later on in the 90s with like Seinfeld. It, it launched Jack A, and it gave Marla Gibbs a chance to be something other than the maid on the Jeffersons. That's what it was. It yeah. was, you know, they wanted you know, Marla Gibbs, they, they, they wanted Marla Gibbs to have a show, and it was Marla Gibbs who launched it, and she, you know, didn't have to be the maid and wisecrack and do all the stuff that she had to do on the Jeffersons, and that was great. She got to be a real actress. And uh, along the way, they launched Jack A, who became incredibly annoying. Well, season uh, season one of that is now on uh, DVD. We also have on DVD uh, from Cinemax the first season of Quarry. Now, Quarry is one of those shows that probably uh, slipped under the radar, but it's really not that bad. It's uh, it's this guy. He's a Marine. He's he comes back to uh, uh, Tennessee. Lives in Memphis. He was in Vietnam in '72. Now he's back, and he's struggling to cope with his experiences. Uh, during the war, and he's drawn into kind of like these bad dudes who are into you know killing and corruption. And so it's very much uh, is a parallel for today, as easy as that might seem. It is kind of true. But um, what I liked about it is that it's kind of like um, it's a little pulpy. It's dark. It's kind of pulpy. It's a little bit like um, they had a show called Banshee Cinemax had Mm -hmm. a couple years ago, which is pretty good. This is a little bit like Banshee. So – you know, um, it's well shot. It's very evocative of the of Memphis, Tennessee in the 70s. Um, so it's good. I think Quarry is one of those kind of under-the-radar shows that if you check out, you might kind of get drawn into it. Swanky. And uh, then the last two from uh, television before we get into uh, some classic movie stuff. The Americans' fourth season. Uh, just before it uh, launches on FX with a new season. Uh, people love The Americans. I uh, I like it. I think it's good. I think it's a good, solid uh, TV spy show. I don't think it's one of the all-time great special uh, television spy shows. I still have a hard time. Matthew Reese, I love. I could see Matthew Reese in absolutely anything. Carrie Russell, I have a very hard time buying her as a spy. Uh, but anyway, uh, fourth season of The Americans, and, uh, you know, it's, uh, it, it's just it's it continues to be a good, solid show. I think they can step it up a little bit, though. I really do. I think they can step it up. So uh, there's that. And then there is uh, True Women, which is a miniseries starring Angelina Jolie, Dana Delaney, and Annabeth Gish. Now, that may tell you that this is not a recent miniseries. In fact, this is uh, 20 years old. And the incredible thing here is that uh, uh, Angelina Jolie has not aged in 20 years. It's really deeply disturbing. I don't, I don't quite understand it. Uh, understand any of this at all, but it's uh, you know women uh, dealing with all the uh, rigors of frontier life, right from you know the uh, liberation of Texas through the Civil War, and uh, and the aftermath, and uh, you know how they how they are sort of the backbone of society, and you know the, the uh, sure the men did all the fighting, but the women were the ones that really really uh, laid down roots and made that uh, made that period, you know bearable for uh for whoever was living in it anyway uh so this is uh you know true women a miniseries that kind of fell off the radar but uh might be worth rediscovering just considering that uh angelina jolie is who she is wade um 1988 dennis hopper late Mm. dennis hopper directed a film uh called colors 
And Colors was a because re- uh, I lived in LA in 1988, and Colors uh, really struck a chord because it stars Sean Penn and Robert Duvall. They are both assigned to the uh, LAPD's gang gang crime division. Um, Duvall's character was just you know called back into service uh, because there's been more gang activity in the city. So Duvall and Sean Penn they play both play cops, but they both kind of hate each other, and so it's all about the Crips and the Bloods because back then. You know, now with you know with the ascendancy of, of rap and hip hop music, everybody knows about gangs, West Coast, East Coast, sure, all gang yeah, thing. Yeah, but in yeah. 1988, you know, it was still uh, Crips and Bloods with kind of scary new words. Yes. You know, and I and Colors is, it's very you know, when you watch it today, it's it, it's, it dates it, well. It, it dates well. It, it's yes, the, the the filmmaking in it is a little more mainstream than you want to give it credit for, than you want to really admit, but it's. It's rough stuff. It's good. I have such an interesting opinion on uh, Dennis Hopper's career as a filmmaker because it's a really truncated career. It's a very strange career. If you were to teach a, a film course on uh, Dennis Hopper as an American auteur, I don't know what you what conclusions you would draw. He made very few films, and none of them are like anything else. Like, you look at this and you go, really, that's the guy that made Easy Rider? I don't understand. The universe doesn't make sense. Because um, yeah. Easy his directing career almost seems like this weird little afterthought that people don't remember. And and he and it's inconsistent. It's incredibly inconsistent, uh, both artistically and in terms of uh, like the last movie. I know, right? It's just very strange. But I'm going to go out on a limb. I think even though Easy Rider is the movie that put him on the map, right, and it's considered landmark in all these ways, but it looks like it was shot by a guy who was just completely out of his mind on drugs at the time. Um, from a from a level of being a filmmaker who is serving the material and who's being incredibly competent, Colors is a hell of a movie. It really is. Yeah. It took a lot of heat at the time, you know, for being overtly commercial and not really kind of addressing the the issue of street gangs in a very realistic way, et cetera, et cetera. But it's well acted. Sean Penn and Duvall are terrific. The plot, yeah, it's a little bit pedestrian, but I'll tell you, just from a technical standpoint, this is a hell of a well-mounted and put-together movie. I mean, it says Hopper really should have been directing big studio movies long before this, and he should have been getting a lot more uh, a lot more work. So what you're saying is that instead of directing another film, he put on an eye patch and was in Waterworld. Yeah, exactly. Who knows why that happened? Anyway, no, that's I'm glad I'm glad they did this. So shout select with our uh, collector's edition of Colors. Well done, Hopper. Good extras on here, too. Quite a lot of extras. Red Dawn, Wade. Yeah. Wolverines. Yeah, you watch this movie today, and of course, now we're now the Russians are... It's better than the remake. Well, yes. The remake was terrible. As most things are. But it's funny, because when the remake came out, the Russians, you know, t- today with, you know, uh, you know, Donald Trump and probes and, and, and chicanery with the election, whatever, Putin, the whole thing. Yeah. Now, if you watch this today... You're almost circling back to what people felt about the Russians in 1984 when the film first came out. That's <laughs> true. Because between like you know 1980, like between like the end of the Cold War and like you know 2000, whatever you know 10. If you watch you know Red Dawn, it doesn't mean that much. It's a little bit. It's, it's a bit of a relic. Yeah. But now it's starting to take on a little bit more resonance and relevance now that uh, Russia is back being our uh, one of our primary enemies. So this film, uh, you know. It's still a little bit silly, but it's a it's a pretty good action film. And you know, don't forget this thing was um, this thing was written and co-written and directed by John Milius. Now, John Milius was one of the was one of Hollywood's just original, just cigar chomping. You know, he was one of those. Mm-hmm. He was he was the one. He was the one new school Spielberg, Lucas guy 
who kind of, you know, yeah. got lost in that shuffle. He did. Everyone talked about Lucas, and everyone talked about Spielberg, and everyone talked about some of those other guys that came out of UCLA, mm-hmm. USC film school in the 70s, whatever. But Milius, he was the most muscular, brawny, peck and paw esque co- guy. And he, you know, he co wrote uh, Apocalypse, Apocalypse Now. now. And he did uh, Lion, not the the Lion, uh, what was it with Sean? Lion of the Desert? Lion, was Lion of the Desert? Uh, no, Lion of Winter. No, no not Lion, Lion of Winter. I think it was Lion it of the Desert. It was, um, hang on, I'm getting there. Uh, the one with Brian Keith is... Uh, Wind of the Lion. Wind of the Lion, thank you. Brian Keith is uh, Teddy Roosevelt. And, and here's the thing, get this, he also, I don't know why, because I, I watched this yesterday, I told you, he also was EP on Used Cars. Oh, that's right. I he has that. an EP on Used Cars. You know, cars. I, saw, I saw John Melius only once in public. And and uh, I remember it was the funniest thing in the world. It's when I was working when I was an usher at the Man's National Theater, early 1980s. And I can't. I think it was we we just opened Greystoke, and we were and it was being platformed. We were selling out every show every day. It was just it was tremendous. 1,100 seats just being reamed in every showing for like uh, about a week and a half. It was a, tremendous. And I remember seeing John Melius kind of roaming around the theater, walking the line, apparently wondering if he should buy a ticket and stand in line with commoners. And the thing that, that that made him stand out to me was he was wearing a, a headband, like a bandana headband. Oh, no, but not just any bandana headband. No, no, no. He was wearing a rising sun bandana headband like a Japanese kamikaze pilot would wear right before they plowed their zero into an American aircraft carrier. That's what he was wearing. Sounds like something he'd wear. It was the funniest thing in the world. I just thought, really? Are you really wearing a kamikaze headband? Just to, just to remind us, like, I don't know that you're John Melius. Amazing. Anyway, anyway, so uh, uh, shout select new version of Red Dawn. If you don't own any of the previous editions, should you upgrade? You know? Sure, why not? Sure, why not? It's got to look back at, uh, at at the movie, of course. Um, Patrick Swayze is uh, no longer with us, so they get together a bunch of uh, behind-the-scenes folks. So it's fine, but um, yeah, it's Red Dawn. Beautiful. The Dawniest. All right, we got some uh, Twilight Time titles and a couple of Warner Archive titles here. Our uh, Twilight Time releases for the month are great, as they always are. They really pick such interesting stuff. It's like a little mini film festival, i got to be honest. Here's one I'd completely forgotten about. Mark, do you remember Chili Scenes of Winter? Did you ever see it? I mean, 1980-whatever 79. 79. Yeah. 1979, Joan Micklin Silver. Who? Where'd she go? Great. I mean, really, just really smart filmmaking, smart writing. Uh, it's just too bad. Based based on a uh, a novel by Anne Beatty, uh, Chilly Scenes of Winter is just a wonderful romantic comedy of the period. It goes right up there with Annie Hall and Goodbye Girl, and uh, you know all of that kind of uh, all that uh, uh, Woody Allen Mazursky stuff that we remember from the nineteen uh, seventies. Unmarried that, Woman. Unmarried Woman. Exactly. It's that kind of a movie. With uh, in this case, it's John Hurd and uh, Mary Beth Hurt who are the couple, and it's just it's smart and it's clever and it's interesting and it's true and it's got great supporting performances. Uh, you know, uh, Peter Peter Riegert is in this. Remember Peter Riegert? I like him. He's great. Sure, it's fantastic. So it's a lot of fun. So that's on Blu-ray from uh, Twilight Time. Looks really really good. Legendary Kiss of Death is also out. Uh, Kiss of Death from 1947. One you know, of the Peter ulti- Rieger was in uh, was in Joan Micklin Silver to me best film Crossing to Lancy. Remember oh, Crossing to terrific. Lancy from '88? Yes, with, with Amy that. Irving. With Amy Irving. Yeah, yeah. Well, okay. So next up from 1947, the amazing Kiss of Death, which is one of the all time great noirs, directed by Henry Hathaway. Uh, really, just a just a, a tough, gritty, really cool, very smart movie with great performances. Uh, Richard Widmark, Victor Mature. It's really, really good stuff. Uh, 
you have to say, Victor Mature may have turned in the best performances of his career in this. He otherwise was not a screen actor. He was just a, a pretty face that was mostly wooden and leaden and everything. But here he plays a, a crook who's just trying to let go of all of his ugly past. And uh, he winds up falling into the shadow of a very, very, very terrifyingly freaky, scary psychopath uh, played by Richard Whitmark. And it is, uh, it is just legendary. Whitmark has never been more terrifying. And he forces Victor Mature to be a better actor. It is really, really impressive. Um, anyway, H- Hathaway shot it beautifully. Uh, beautiful locations, beautiful photography. Fantastic. Edge of Eternity, also on Blu-ray from Twilight Time. I and mean, you go to twilighttimemovies.com to find these. I would point out twilighttimemovies.com. Uh, this is not a great film, Edge of Eternity, but it's kind of one of those cinemascope things that uh, people remember because it was you know, a film of its time. Uh, directed by Don Siegel, so it's very, very competent. But um, it, it is a, uh, as an action film. Action films of the 50s date fairly poorly by today's standards. They're not covered the same way. They're not quite as intense. So, uh, and Cornell Wilde, not exactly an actor that people necessarily uh, remember, but um, you know what? It's, it's nicely shot. The cinemascope is nice, and uh, it's, a, you know, it's a decent crime filler in its context. Now, the last one, which we're going to talk about a little bit here, Mark, is this movie. On Blu-ray, for the first time, from Twilight Time, Woody Allen's... Interiors. With a Woody Allen audio commentary. (laughs) (laughs) No, Mark's joking. Uh, There's only a trailer. There's nothing else on here. But let's... uh, And by the way, that that kind of breaks the the format for Twilight Time, who usually puts isolated scores on almost all of theirs. But this does not have an isolated score. Uh, I guess because you just couldn't... They couldn't get Woody to agree to it. But in any case, um, what do we think of interiors? You know, it was a real statement from Woody. It's almost like you can't... You can't consider the film divorced from the statement Woody was making in making the film. Right. Right? The I'm going to be taken seriously now. I don't want to be the, the, the funny guy. Yeah. You know, I, I, I went from bananas and take the money and run yeah. to Annie Hall, which was best picture. Best picture, but it's also very funny, but still there was some serious stuff, yeah. relationships to interiors, which is just kill yourself depressing. It is. It is. It is Woody's first shot at saying, I'm going to make a straight drama because I really do think that I can be as good as Ingmar Bergman. Which he's only done a few times in his career, um, but this is definitely the one where people sort of sat. They sat up in their seats and said, "Uh huh." At, at the time, I was like, "I, I am just yeah. depressed and want to kill myself." <laughs> it's, it is a. It is such a. It is such an unusual film because it is so utterly and completely not funny. Uh, and and it really, uh, you know, coming right, right, kind of butted up against Annie Hall as it was. Um, it it, it kind of threw people for a loop. It really did. Uh, so, but you know what? Here's what I hang on to here. I hang on to the fact that it is, if it were any other filmmaker, I would have brought different expectations to the table, and I probably would have thought that it was a really, really interesting movie. It's only because we let ourselves get bogged down by the baggage of expectations that we associate with Woody, and that's kind of unfair. But also, don't forget that the guy who directed Take the Money and Run, Yeah. right? Look how, look how, how assured this is. Would you think that the guy who directed Take the Money and Run, where the yeah. camera's running around, the guy's got a cello in his hand and running yeah. down the street, would you think that he could direct something as as as, as bleak and no. assured as this? No. You know? Yeah. It was, a, it was a super mature film for a guy who started his career as, as, as a bit of a clown. Yeah. 
which you is know, what he wanted a, to do. A wonderful, fantastic clown, the best of all, to be one of the best. But story, the story basically concerns a family, three daughters and these very overbearing parents, uh, played by Geraldine Page and E.G. Marshall. And, uh, you know, D- Diane Keaton is just terrific here. I mean, she really, really just a completely different turn. Mary Beth Hurt is, is also wonderful. Uh, really a film of its day, but I, I still think it's a really solid film. I think, it's, uh, I think it's really good. And I'm glad it's out on Blu-ray, finally. People get to discover interiors and make up their own minds. Well, from, hist- from a historical perspective, it yes. deserves to be out, and it's long overdue. Yeah, yeah. So in and that sense, it's worth watching. There's also that great line in Stardust Memories where the aliens say, we prefer your early movies, the early funny early ones. Early funny ones. Yeah. Uh, and the two, uh, before I throw this back to Mark, two from the Warner Archive Collection, both Blu-rays, uh, long overdue in either case. One is The Boyfriend by Ken Russell with Twiggy, uh, another one of Ken Russell's very few accessible movies um, before he went completely off the farm. This is 1971 Ken Russell. So, yes, it's got a whole kind of fantastical, kitschy style to it, uh, but it's wonderful. It really is wonderful. Uh, it's got a, you know, it's not heavy, it's not leaden, it's not uh, campy per se. It's just, it's very much of its day, and it's uh, it's stylish and colorful, and uh, it's, um, you know, Twiggy is wonderful. It is for those who don't know, based on Sandy Wilson's uh, stage, uh, very very popular stage hit, and um, it's it kind of it owes a lot to Busby Berkeley. It is a, kind of an homage to that particular era of, of musicals. And as, uh, you know, Ken Russell was not unaccustomed to doing musicals. He had done kind of the classical musicals, right? He'd done things like uh, like Mahler and Listomania. So, I mean, he was still very much in a musical vein in 1971. And uh, that was that period of his filmmaking. I, and I love that Ken Russell period. I think it's really, really good. Uh, and then we also have the Yakuza, which I still love and I still think is really, really cool. Uh, even though they, uh, <laughs> the tagline really is inaccurate. Uh, the Yakuza, 100 years ago, they were called Samurai. It's got nothing to do with it. Yakuza organized crime. They're not the modern Samurai. That has nothing to do with it. But in any case, uh, Actually, this is... the opposite. Samurai is like the lone warrior. Who yeah. Goes out and, yeah. And it, Yakuza is like a gang. Yeah, Yakuza is organized crime. Anyway, uh, Sidney Pollack directed this, and with his usual uh, sense of incredible professionalism from a script that is, features two of the most legendary screenwriters of all time, Paul Schrader and Robert Town. Now, they didn't write it together. Robert Town rewrote Paul Schrader, but that must be, that's a hell of a rewrite. I gotta oh, yeah. say right there. It's also an embarrassing rewrite. Sorry, yeah, I'm sorry. I gotta rewrite. <laughs> you gotta go. Like, you call him up on the phone and you go, dude, I'm so sorry, but I just they pay their pay. Like He's Chinatown like, hey, rewriting. I mean, a, a taxi driver rewriting <laughs> Chinatown. <and that laughs> yeah. kind of but in any case, uh, it's a terrific film, 1975. Uh, story by Leonard Schrader. We should point out his sister. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, great script by Paul Schrader and Robert Town, and a terrific direction by Sidney Pollack. Robert Mitchum has never been better. And uh, we should point out uh, Ken Takakura, who plays the Yakuza in this thing, is just phenomenal. Totally, totally owns it. So uh, this is great stuff. It's on Blu-ray finally. Looks terrific. Bravo to Warner Archive. Bravo to Criterion for their release of 45 years from uh, Andrew Hay. This is just a uh, – this is – look, I – I it's, like this a lot less than everybody else, but I'm glad Criterion handled it because it, they do it better than anybody else. It's true. I, 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 I am loath uh, to recommend a story that stars two people in their 70s or, you know, and it's just a sober drama with people. But yet this film, here's the thing. This film 
It's so terrific. It's about these small moments, moments where silence is just as deafening as, you know, as the biggest proclamations, you know, scream from the sky. It's just, it's just superb. And, um, Charlotte Rampling, who received her first Oscar nomination for this, um, plays a uh, woman. She's married to uh, Tom Courtney, and they've been married for 45 years. And then something uh, comes up in his past life that she discovers that that just that just creates a little bit of a sliver in her uh, perception of him and how it allows her to actually go back and revisit the years that they were married with different eyes, different tragic eyes. It's it is a it's a great idea. I just don't like Andrew Haig as a director. I really don't. I just find that he just he's way too tamped down and tepid and doesn't really. I'd like to see him get a little more oomph in his step. You know, uh, this movie just kind of lays there, and uh, it's beautifully acted. I mean, it's fantastically well acted, but it just doesn't have enough oomph for me. Well, you know, but what I liked about it is that it was it was not unsent it was it was unsentimental. It True. Did, it, it does not go for the big moments of you know. That's oh true. my god! I can't believe you did this. Yeah. It's just, it's just, it's just spare and unsentimental and very inward looking and very understated. And that final shot, you know, it was just devastating. So if you want to take a look at a film that, yes, it's you know, it stars old people being married for forty five years, yeah. but you get a real masterclass in understatement. You know, true. you you in the last couple of years you cannot do much better than forty five years. I agree. I agree. Uh, it's, it, it, just from the performances alone, I just want to say that. I, I, that's my appreciation of the film. So the good folks at Mill Creek are trying to take advantage of Stranger Things by coming up with a 11-DVD uh, collection that they're calling Strange Things with a cover art that looks like Stranger Things and a title that's called Strange Things. But don't be fooled. It's just a bunch of crap that they put together into a DVD set. And mm -hmm. normally we, we like Mill Creek. We like them, but come, come on, guys. So here are the films. Pulse, Space Hunter. Space Hunter, that's one of the... Okay, it's got a couple films that uh, of, of general note. First of all, it has Crawl. Now, Crawl just came out, right? Um, didn't Crawl, Crawl just came out on Blu-ray. Yeah, just not too long ago, yeah. yeah. So you have Crawl and Space Hunter. Now, Crawl and Space Hunter are the two that, you know, okay, they're notable. I get that. There's also Pulse. There's My Mom's a Werewolf, The Hearse, Lurkers. Uh, Slipstream, which co-stars uh, the late Bill Paxton and Mark Hamill, Mutant, Warriors of the Wasteland, Alien Contamination, and uh, Eternal Evil. You know, you really got to want to bang for your buck if you want to buy this thing. I'll only say that for fans who know what Crawl is, they probably already bought the recent Crawl Blu-ray. Space Hunter, I get it. You know, that's kind of a culty, fun thing from back in the day. The other films are just not very good. So, uh, you know, if, if if they're trying to take advantage of the popularity of Stranger Things, A, you should have released this months ago. <laughs> and B, you could have tried to pick films that at least were referenced in the miniseries or had more of a connection to the series. But you know what? Nice try, Mill Creek. Uh, and then we've got uh, a uh, the last handful of uh, classic movie titles here. Uh, this one is DVD only, not on Blu-ray, I assume because someone else has purchased the Blu-ray rights or retained them. But this is the last best year with uh, two performances that I think are absolutely first rate. This is from 1990, and I have to say it is really, really tough, especially in the wake of her recent passing, to watch how good Mary Tyler Moore is. This is Mary Tyler Moore and Bernadette Peters. 
And uh, they're both terrific. Uh, Bernadette Peters is a woman who uh, finds that she is dying. And uh, she goes to see her doctor, played by Brian Bedford, who uh, makes a very interesting introduction to a psychologist to help her deal with her diagnosis. And that psychologist is Mary Tyler Moore. And then that's the movie. It's that relationship. And um, it, is, it is watching two wonderful actresses. But gosh, I'll tell you, watching Mary Tyler Moore, I just, I just start to cry because it's just, you know, she's just like an all-American treasure. And uh, the fact that it's on DVD makes me think a Blu-ray is probably in the offing from someone else or perhaps from Olive if, uh, if the deal is different. But in any case, uh, so that is, that is out there for those who want to see it right now, the last best year. And then also on Blu-ray, Evelyn... Uh, with Pierce Brosnan, one of his better performances. This is a real tearjerker, directed by Bruce Beresford with uh, all of his aplomb. Uh, it is very sentimental. This is an Irish uh, film about a very, very sad story that took place in 1955 where uh, a, a father, played by Pierce Brosnan, uh, loses... The, well, his, his wife walks out on the family, and he finds himself now fighting... Um, a, a very strange part of Irish law that says that he cannot continue to be hold custody of his children. So in any case, it uh, it winds up being a big you know courtroom thing, and uh, actors love those courtroom drama moments when they get to really just lay it on the line and lay it on thick. In any case, uh, one of Bruce Beresford's more underrated films. This is from two thousand and two, uh, and definitely Pierce Brosnan's uh, one of his best dramatic performances. Uh, one of my all-time favorite movies, No Retreat, No Surrender. Mark, this is so amazing. This was the first time American audiences got a glimpse of Jean-Claude Van Damme. This is a martial arts film that basically rips off everything from Rocky IV and the Karate Kid to some degree. Uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme makes his debut here as a Russian, I should point out. And uh, the, he's, he's, you know, the, the, it, it's all about this kid who is uh, kind of being mentored by the ghost of Bruce Lee, which is hysterically cheesy. And uh, in any case, my favorite part of this movie, my favorite part of this movie is where it, Jean-Claude Van Damme reacts to the word Russian as if it's an insult. You Russian. And he, he gets angry. He gets mad that somebody called him a Russian, even though that's what he is. It's hysterical. Well, it's the way he said it that angered him. Oh, it's so funny. In any case, the uh, the great novelty of this film is it's directed by Corey Yun, who is the same Corey Yun, uh, who is one of the uh, the uh, little brothers that you know came up through the system with Sammo Hung and Jackie Chan. They all trained together. They were all kids together. And Corey Yun became famous as a director, directing almost all of Jet Li's very early hits. So including The Legend of Feng Sai-yuk 1 and 2. So Corey Yun made his American debut, never directed another American movie. And then lastly, uh, before I turn it over to you and we start wrapping this up, is Aria, 30th Anniversary Edition. Did you ever see Aria when it came out 30 years ago? No, I did not. What a weird movie. Uh, so here's what they did. They went to 10 noteworthy directors, and they said, why don't you just, let's do an experiment. We're going to just have all 10 directors pick a piece of opera music that they love and just imagine some visual kind of story around it and uh, shoot that. Just shoot it, whatever you want. Just pick a great piece of music. you got to stick to this particular catalog because RCA is working with us. But pick something from the RCA catalog and a nice piece of opera music and then just shoot the daylights out of it. That's what they did. Some of it's better than others. Uh, it's interesting. It's uh, uneven. It's always engaging because it moves pretty quickly. And here are the 10 directors... Robert Altman, Bruce Beresford, Bill Bryden, who doesn't do anything anymore, Jean-Luc Godard, Derek Jarman, 
who of course has passed, Frank Rodham, Nicholas Rogue, Ken Russell, Charles Sturridge, and Julian Temple. Now, Nicholas Rogue, Ken Russell, and Julian Temple, uh, and Jean-Luc Godard alone make this worth watching. Those four are just completely off the hook. Uh, Charles Sturridge, Robert Altman, and Bruce Beresford kind of hold it down, uh, and then everybody else is sort of along for the ride. So uh, there it is, ten directors, ten dramatic interpretations of great operatic arias. Wade, uh, Bright Lights, which is a uh, documentary on HBO about uh, the relationship between Carrie Fisher and her mother, Debbie Reynolds. This thing played the Cannes Film Festival in, uh, in May of last year. And, of course, by the end of the year, they would both be dead, tragically, one day apart. Just absolutely a tragic, tragic story. And so um, this thing wound up, wound up getting pushed out uh, in January, and now it is finally on DVD, uh, courtesy of um, HBO Documentary Films. You know, this thing is, it's, it, obviously you're watching this with different eyes now that uh, they both uh, they both passed away, but uh, it's just terrific. It's, it's, it was co-directed by Fisher Stevens and his, either his wife or his girlfriend, Alexis mm-hmm. Bloom. Um, and so it played the festival circuit, was quite well received, and then six months later they were dead. Uh, uh, mm-hmm. You know, and it's just, so really this thing takes on, a whole new dimension. It is so sad now to to just read about their very complicated relationship. You know the fact that um, that Debbie Reynolds really wanted Carrie Fisher to be a singer. You know they were unbreakable. They were an unbreakable pair. You know Reynolds, w- her performance was her passion. She did not want to retire, mm-hmm. and she passed that passion along uh, to Carrie Fisher, of course, along with Carrie's father. Um, and it's just it's just terrific, you know. It, it you learn about how uh, Carrie so Fisher upsetting had, losing both of them. Carrie Fisher had a little bit of a, of a problem, you know, wrapping her head around the Star Wars phenomenon, you know, and that Fisher's mental health was always a bit of an issue for Debbie Reynolds, always just rooting for and helping her out as best she can. So, Bright Lights is a good documentary that has now become a very melancholy, sad, tragic, gutm documentary thanks to the events. Uh, that happened since it was made. So I would definitely check out Bright Lights. I'll watch her on HBO. Uh, four docs from PBS that are that are really standouts uh, this month. Uh, the first one is The Race Underground. This is an amazing documentary from uh, American Experience that talks about, uh, it's basically all about the uh, transportation and how Boston was the city that with all of the, the, you know, as people flocked to the cities at the turn of the century and the Industrial Revolution and everything, uh, and, and public transportation became this really pressing need, um, is about how Boston created America's first subway. I did not know that. Did you know that? Was Boston what? was where the, Boston's the first American subway. Not, not Manhattan. It was Boston. Is that right? Yeah. Crazy. So uh, anyway, it's well, but a, the Boston subway is like the, like the, the thing with the New York subway is that it's mostly not all of it obviously, but underground, like deep yeah. underground. Yes. Whereas a lot of the Boston subway it's is trolleys it's and trolleys yeah, and whatnot. Yeah. yeah. So in any case, this is uh, this is about that, and it is a fascinating story. Uh, also from American Experience is Oklahoma City, which is all about the uh, the you know the, the Oklahoma City bombing in 1995. Timothy McVeigh. And the whole story that goes around that, and that is a that is a chilling story with many details that I'm sure you do not know. Uh, and there's also City in the Sky, which is uh, 
a, a rather extraordinary BBC documentary that uh, wound up with PBS that is all about what goes on to actually make it possible for our current gigantic global network of airlines and air flight, which is just, it, it, we're so dependent on it. Uh, what makes that ne- work? We take it for granted. We don't realize just all the engineering and the, uh, the planning and everything that goes into it. It's, it's just tremendous. And then uh, lastly, another American Experience documentary, Rachel Carson, who is really uh, not a, a household name, unless you are extremely well-schooled in the, uh, the history of uh, the environmental movement. And uh, Rachel Carson kind of was the uh, instigating figure in a lot of that. In 1962, she wrote a book called Silent Spring, which was uh, the first kind of cautionary warning about, the, about pesticides, saying, you know, yeah, I get it, they kill bugs, but they, they might also possibly kill you. And um, that started a real that started a real kind of national conversation about uh, whether or not the things that we're doing to our food and to our environment, presumably for our good, are necessarily for our good. And uh, anyway, really, really a fascinating woman with a tragic uh, life and some really interesting twists and turns. Uh, this is a tremendous documentary. They'd always do an amazing job. Who all, the, the American Experience just has some of the best documentary editors and writers and filmmakers in the business, and this is one of the best. Way this documentary that you got to see called The C Word. You got a C called The C Word, narrated by uh, Morgan Freeman. No, The C Word, that's not the one I'm talking about. I'm talking about cancer, and this documentary takes it. Uh, from an interesting angle, and it does it with uh, humor and heart and a lot of personal stories. It's all about the the industry that keeps people sick, and the health insurance industry oh, that man. that you know is more interested in profits than it is creating cures. Like seven thousand dollar dental uh, work. Oh, it's the worst. <laughs> seven thousand dollars to yeah. to get an implant. Actually, you know what? Actually, hey, you know what? Here's the bill. Oh, really? This is the bill. I swear to God. Okay, okay let's see. Sinus augment, uh. sinus augment vertical approach, $3,000. Now, here's the thing. The implant, the surgical implant itself was only $2,234. Uh-huh. $600 was the implant maintenance procedure. $413 were the, uh, was the bone graft. And $350 was the emodegain. Oh, you know what? I, I asked for gas. Because uh, I'm go. a wimp, I asked for gas. Of course you did. Now that 450 is worth it because I'm a coward. <laughs> anyway, seven thousand dollars. Anyway, okay. uh, that does not take away from the importance of the C word. A terrific documentary that will really gets you angry over the idea that 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 as, as as the book says, cancer is the emperor of all maladies. Yeah. And we are finally getting to the place where there will never be a silver bullet, a magic bullet to cure cancer. But if we can do those gene therapies and whatnot, we can finally cure this thing. And so that we don't go out on an unbelievably depressing note, uh, two foreign language films to uh, put on your map today. Uh, the first one is Kanoa, A Shameful Memory, which is a, uh, a really, this is a Criterion release of a movie that I had never heard of from 1976. Really an interesting film. I can't say I like it particularly, but it has an interesting introduction from Guillermo del Toro that kind of puts it in, uh, in context. Uh, directed by Felipe Casals. It's a political film from 1976, um, which is all about a, a, an actual incident where some students were attacked by a mob in a village because they'd been incited, because a, a priest had incited the mob telling them that these students were communist revolutionaries. Um, it, it very much about the political climate in uh, Mexico in the 1970s 
and uh, it's shot in a in a really interesting way, very much of the era, but also really kind of you know uh, very kind of cinema verite style. And uh, I, I don't think the movie quite works, but I understand it in context, especially when you uh, when you watch the conversation that's also on here between Alfonso Cuarón and Casals. So, you know, you have the intro from uh, Del Toro and uh, the conversation with uh, Cuarón and Casals afterwards. And, and lastly, uh, is Tana, which is a uh, kind of a Romeo and Juliet type story that was Australia's foreign language entry uh, at the Oscars this year. Um, the, it did not get nominated, but it's an interesting film. Takes is shot entirely on Vanuatu, where a lot of uh, Malik's The Thin Red Line, I believe, was shot. And uh, it takes place in, a, uh, in an aboriginal tribe on, on uh, one of these sort of a generic uh, South Pacific island where a, uh, a young girl and a boy fall in love, but their love is doomed because he is the chieftain's grandson and she is supposed to be married off to another tribe to uh, forestall war. And, of course, they run away together and it becomes uh, kind of a, a very conventional and sweet romance, but um, in very much the Romeo and Juliet vein, except that it's set in an Aboriginal culture, in an indigenous culture. So uh, that film is Tana, and that is on Blu-ray. Tana, two tribes, one love. Kind of a lame tagline, but uh, in any case, it's uh, it's worth checking out. It's very, very nicely done. It's well done. So with that, we are done, and we will see you all next week.